An Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales Book 2, Chapter 2 A Short Plan for Meditation First, Concerning the Presence of God, which is the first point of preparation. You may, perhaps, not understand how to practice mental prayer, for unfortunately, at the present time, it is too much neglected. I will therefore give you some short and simple instructions concerning it. First, I would note the preparation, which may be divided into two parts. Placing yourself in the presence of God and invoking His help. To the first end, placing yourself in the presence of God, I will give you four chief means whereby to begin. The first consists in a keen and attentive realizing of God's omnipresence, that He is in all and everywhere, that there is no place nor thing in the world where He is not, so that, as the birds, let them fly where they will, always meet the air. So we, let us go where we will, be where we will, shall always be where God is. We all know this as an intellectual truth, but we do not always receive and act upon it. A blind man does not see his sovereign, but if he is informed of the king's presence, he maintains an attitude of reverence. Yet not seeing the object of respect, he easily forgets that it is present, and so forgetting, soon loses his reverence. So with us, we do not see God, and although faith warns us that He is present, yet not seeing Him with our own eyes, we soon forget it, and act as though He were far off. For though, as a mere matter of reasoning, we know that He is everywhere, if we do not think about it, the result is the same as if we did not know it. For this reason, we should always, before we pray, excite our souls to an attentive recollection of the presence of God. Thus David says, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I go down into hell, you are present. Psalm 88, verse 8 and so may we use the words of Jacob, who, when he had beheld the holy ladder of angels, exclaimed, How terrible is this place! Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not! Genesis chapter 28, verse 16 and 17 That is, he had not thought about it, for surely he knew that God is everywhere. When, therefore, you would pray, say to your heart, and with your whole heart, Surely God is in this place. The second means by which you may realize this sacred presence is to remember that not only is God in the place where you are, but that He is also specially within your heart and spirit, which He animates and quickens with His divine presence the heart of your heart, the spirit of your spirit. For just as the soul animates the whole body, 
yet above all inhabits the heart. So God, being present everywhere, is yet specially present with our spirits. Therefore David calls God the God of his heart. And St. Paul says that in him we live and move and have our being. This reflection will excite deep reverence within your heart for that God who is ever so close to you. The third means is to reflect upon our Savior, who in his humanity looks down from heaven upon all men, but chiefly on Christians who are his children, and still more specially on those who pray, to whose thoughts and actions he gives careful heed. Nor is this a mere supposition, but an assured truth, for though we see him not, he is ever looking down upon us. The martyr St. Stephen beheld him thus, and we may say with the bride, Behold, he stands behind our wall, looking through the windows, looking through the lattices. Canticles, chapter 2, verse 9. The fourth means is, in imagination, to behold the Savior in his sacred humanity as actually present with us, just as we do with the friends we love, saying, Oh, I can just see him doing or saying such and such things. But if the blessed sacrament be present, this present is no longer imaginary, but actual. For hidden under the veil of bread and wine, the Savior is really present, beholding and watching us, although we cannot see his bodily presence. Before you pray, then, make use of some of these methods whereby to place your soul in the presence of God, and do not attempt to use them all at once, but one at a time, and let what you do be short and simple. Chapter 3 of invocation, the second part of preparation. Invocation is as follows. Having placed your soul in the presence of God, you must prostrate it with deep reverence, acknowledging yourself unworthy to approach His sovereign majesty, yet knowing that His goodness would have you draw near, and therefore asking of Him grace to serve and worship Him in your meditation. To this end you can use some such brief and earnest petitions as those of David when he said, Cast me not away from thy face, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Or, Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thine ordinances. Or, Give me understanding, and I will search thy law and I will keep it with my whole heart. Or, I am thy servant. Oh, give me understanding. And many other such. Furthermore, it will help you to invoke your guardian angel and those saints most especially connected with the subject of your meditation. Thus, in meditating on the death of our Lord, you might invoke 
Our Lady, St. John, St. Mary Magdalene, the penitent thief, so that the holy inspirations which prompted them may be communicated to you. And in meditating on your own death, you would invoke your guardian angel, who will be present then, so that he may help you to reflect suitably, and so on with other mysteries. Chapter 4. Third Point of Preparation. Setting Forth the Mystery. After these two ordinary points in meditation comes a third, which is not common to all meditation, and which is by some called the compositio loci, and by others the inward lesson. This is simply, by the aid of the imagination, representing to ourselves the mystery on which we would meditate, as though it were actually performing before our eyes. For instance, if the subject of your meditation is the crucified Savior, imagine yourself on Mount Calvary, beholding and hearing all the events of his passion, and represent to yourself all that the evangelists describe. Do the same thing when you meditate on death, or on hell, and similar mysteries which concern visible things of the senses. For when we come to the mysteries of God's greatness, the excellence of goodness, the end of our creation, and such invisible things, we cannot employ this active imagination. We certainly can use likenesses and comparisons to assist our reflections, but there is some effort in this. And I would have you act with great simplicity, and not fatigue your mind with labored thoughts. By the help of vivid imagination, we can the better fix our mind upon the proposed subject of meditation, and refrain from wandering thoughts. Just as a bird is confined in a cage or a hawk by its jesses, so that it may not quit the wrist. There are some who will tell you that it's better to use the pure thoughts of faith, and a simple apprehension altogether mental and spiritual in the representation of these mysteries. But I consider that too hard and subtle a process at first. And until it pleases God to lead you higher, I counsel you, Philothea, to rest satisfied with the humble means which I have indicated. Chapter 5. Second Part of Meditation. Reflections. After this act of imagination, there follows an act of the understanding, which we call meditation, which is simply one or more reflections made with the view of exciting our affections toward God and the things of heaven. And the difference between meditation and study, or any other processes of thought, is that the latter have, do not have virtue and the love of God for their goal, but their object is temporal, such as the acquisition of knowledge for purposes of discussion, composition, etc. Having then confined your mind to the appointed subject, by imagination if the subject be corporeal, or by simple thought if it is purely spiritual, Begin to make reflections upon it in the way that I have already shown you in the preceding meditations.
If your mind finds sufficient food and light in one reflection, then dwell upon that only. Imitating the bee, which does not leave a flower until it has sucked all the honey out of it. But, if you do not find sufficient matter for reflection in the first topic, proceed, after some efforts, to another. But let all be done quietly, and without haste. CHAPTER six, Third Part of Meditation Affections and Resolutions Meditation fills our will, the effective part of the soul, with good impulses, such as the love of God and of our neighbor, the desire of heaven and its glories, zeal for the salvation of souls, imitation of the life of our Savior, compassion, veneration, holy joy, fear of God's displeasure, of judgment in hell, hatred of sin, confidence in the mercy and goodness of God, repentance for our past sins. And we should seek to enlarge and confirm our soul as much as possible in these affections. To that end, take the first volume of the meditations of Don Andrew Capilia and study his preface in which he shows how to expand the affections, as Father Arias does, does at greater length in his Treatise on Prayer. Nevertheless, Philothea, you must not rest satisfied with general desires and aspirations, but rather turn them into special resolutions for your individual correction and amendment. For instance, when you meditate upon the first of our Saviour's words from the cross, you will assuredly feel a desire to imitate him, to forgive and love your enemies. But that desire is worth little, unless you proceed to some practical resolution such as, I will no longer get angry at the irritating words which such a one says to me or about me nor at the annoyance caused to me by another. On the contrary, I will do and say all that I can to soothe and win them, and so on. In this way you will soon correct your faults, whereas mere desires will have but few and tardy results. Chapter 7 The Conclusion Finally, you must conclude your meditation with three acts, prayers, which must be made with the utmost humility. First, an act of thanksgiving, thanking God for giving us good desires and resolutions, and for His mercy and goodness, which have been made known to us in meditation. Secondly, an act of oblation, offering, in which we offer to God his own mercy and goodness, the death, the blood, and the merits of his Son, and in union with these offer our own affections and resolutions. Thirdly, an act of intercession, by which we entreat God to impart to us the graces and virtues of his Son, and to bless our desires and resolutions so that we may faithfully fulfill them. And further, we must pray for the Church, 
for our pastors, our relations, our friends, and all others, making use of the intercession of our Blessed Lady, the saints, and the angels, concluding with the Our Father and the Hail Mary, the universal and never-failing petition of the faithful. To this, I would add that we should gather a little nosegay, a little bouquet of devotion. When we walk in a beautiful garden, we usually gather some few choice flowers, inhale their fragrance, and carry them away with us, retaining and enjoying them throughout the day. So, when our mind has fed upon some mystery by meditation, we should select some few points which especially strike us and are most calculated to benefit us. And we should dwell upon them, inhaling their spiritual odor. And this we should strive to do in the place where we have been engaged in meditation or in solitude afterwards. Chapter 8 Further Rules for Meditation Above all, Philothea, you must be careful to retain the resolutions to which you have come through meditation on your return to active duties. Without this chief fruit of meditation, it becomes not only useless, but positively hurtful. For our mind is apt to rest satisfied with the thinking about instead of the practice of virtues until we persuade ourselves that we are what we have resolved to be. This is all very well if our resolutions are active and solid, but if not, it is a vain and dangerous error. Therefore, we should always endeavor to put our resolutions into practice and seek every occasion for doing so. For instance, if I have resolved to win over those who annoy me by my gentleness, I will seek the opportunity of coming up to them kindly, and if such does not occur, I will speak well about them and pray on their behalf. On leaving this fervent prayer, you must beware of giving your heart any sudden shock which might spill the precious balm with which devotion has filled it. I mean that, if possible, you should remain some brief season in quietness, and gradually pass from prayer to your needful occupations, seeking to retain as long as possible the holy thoughts and inclinations which you have been exercising. A man who has received a costly vessel full of some precious cordial would carry it most carefully. He would walk slowly and not look idly around him, but keep his eyes now on the road before him, for fear some stone or false step should endanger him, now at his vase, for fear that he should spill its contents. Do the like when you cease your meditation. Do not at once plunge into distractions, but merely look straight ahead of you. If you must of necessity enter into worldly conversation, you cannot help it, but you can be on the watch and mount guard over your heart, so that you may lose as little as possible of the precious cordial that you have obtained in prayer. 
you must accustom yourself to go from prayer to whatever occupations may be involved by your station or profession. Even though they may seem far distant from the feelings excited in you by that prayer, Thus, the lawyer must go from prayer to his pleadings, the merchant to his trade, the wife to her conjugal and household duties. With perfect calm and tranquility, for since these duties, as well as that of prayer, are imposed upon us by God, we must pass from one to the other duty in a devout and humble spirit. Perhaps sometimes, directly after your preparation, you may find your affections greatly kindled toward God. And then I would have you yield to them without heeding any formal method, for the object of that is to excite the affections, and if the Holy Spirit gives you that warmth of affection and resolution without studied reflection, you have no need of it. In short, Whenever pious affections are stirred up in you, receive them and welcome them, whether they come before or after reflection. I have only classed the affections after reflection in order the better to divide the several parts of prayer. For it is an established rule never to restrain the affections, but always to yield to them when they are kindled. And this equally applies to the acts of thanksgiving, oblation, and intercession, which must not be withheld at any time, although they should always be repeated at the conclusion of your meditation. But you should always make your resolutions after such affections, and last of all, before concluding your meditation, because as resolutions relate to common everyday matters, they would be very likely to distract and disturb you earlier. Among our affections and resolutions, it is well to colloquially address our Savior, the angels, the persons connected with the mysteries, the saints, ourselves, our hearts, sinners, and even inanimate creatures, after the example of David in the Psalms and other saints in their meditations and prayers. Chapter 9 On the Dryness Which May Trouble Meditation Should you find neither delight nor consolation in meditation, do not be disheartened, but have recourse occasionally to vocal prayer. Bewail yourself to the Lord, Confess your unworthiness, and say with Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me, or with the Canaanite woman. Yes, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Or else take a book and read attentively until your heart is quickened and reassured. Or stir up your heart by the help of some outward action or gesture. Prostrate yourself, cross your hands upon your breast, embrace the crucifix, uh, taking it for granted that you're alone. But if these things avail you nothing, do not be disheartened, however great your dryness. Only 
continue to present yourself devoutly before God. How many courtiers daily appear before their sovereign without a hope of speaking with him, content to be seen by him and to offer their homage. So, Philothea, must we pray, purely and simply in order to do homage to God and show our faithfulness. If it pleases His Divine Majesty to speak with us, to hold converse with us by His holy inspirations and inward consolations, it is, doubtless, a great honor and an unspeakable delight. But if He does not grant so to favor us, neither speaking nor even appearing to perceive us, as though we weren't in His presence, yet we must not quit it, therefore. On the contrary, we must remain, devoutly and meekly, before his sovereign goodness. And then he will assuredly accept our patience, and observe our assiduity and perseverance. So that, when we again come before him, he will look favorably on us, and reward us with his consolations, bidding us to taste the sweetness of devout prayer. But if not... Let us rest content, remembering that we are unworthy even of the honor of standing before him and standing in his sight. End of chapter 9 of book 2